And good morning. So we're using a new format, uh, going back to the original format. So Logan tells me now I can see all of you guys' names as you guys pop on. And uh, hope you guys had an amazing week so far. And I'm going to give you guys a few seconds to hop on. I don't see anybody on. Logan, are we? Oh, here we go. Good morning, Amin. Amin's always an early riser and always first to show up. So, hope you're doing great, buddy. Well, we wait a few more seconds for you guys to hop on. We have some great questions this week and several new members I want to welcome. And uh, yeah. I uh, hope you guys had a wonderful week. I'm excited. Uh, I got a couple of deals I'm working on. Finally, towards the end of the year, seems like always uh, when activities happen for me. Almost every building I've bought, it's been in December. <laughs> uh, last several years. Well, I want to welcome uh, Josiah, Leland, Nick, and Maureen, Angod, and Alex. Welcome to the club. Uh, Make sure you guys introduce yourself in the group. Uh, this is just as much as a uh, networking opportunity as learning from me. So uh, make sure you take advantage of that and network with each other and get to know each other. Um, finally, and now I can see everybody's name on this older format, uh, Facebook. So good morning, Eileen, Leland, Artem, Kuros, and George, Ed, Rahul, Russell. All right, uh, we got Logan with me today. Let's get the show started. He's going to read off uh, your questions and uh, see how I can guide you. All right, good morning, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Like Manny said, we have some great questions today, so we're excited to go ahead and dive in. And we'll get started with the first one from Timothy Tilly. Um, he said, can 1031 money be spread over multiple investment properties? 100%. So there is a, there is, they give you two options on 1031 and I encourage you to Google it. There's, the rules are posted. Uh, it's by IRS, so it's federal, uh, you know, uh, it's federal IRS code. And uh, you have a 200% rule, which you can uh, list as many properties as you want as on your ID form, uh, up to 200% of the value of the property you sold. And you can buy as many as those uh, on the list. Uh, or you can identify up to three properties as a replacement. But Google the code, the law, and all the criteria. But you definitely can. And I have in the past bought multiple properties uh, as an exchange for a, a one property I sold. All right. Second question from Magnus. He wrote us the... A nice little paragraph today and, and guys if you can please keep your questions a little bit shorter moving forward uh kind of like a twitter post 280 characters just for time <laughs> purposes and to make sure that we can all get to everyone's questions but magnus's question is good um he said in your last call you made a statement about office market subleasing driving down office lease rates mm -hmm. such that office property might not participate in inflation related appreciation so the question is do you think this negative phenomenon will be limited to large city center real estate in most markets? Or do you think vacancies in city centers will start to push lease rates down in wealthy suburbs? No, Magnus, uh, uh, first of all, you know, uh, when, when I spoke about 
the office market sublease and significant vacancy you know i'm uh, specifically referring to vertical large block uh, office spaces uh, these are your you know fortune 500 companies that have 20 30 40 50 60,000 square feet blocks in these vertical buildings where they have their employees work from home i'm not referring to low rise office garden that has your mom and pop tenants uh, you know, your insurance broker, your real estate firms, and uh, of those type of tenants. So, yeah, I, I don't believe that a small, um, you know, office tenants are going to get hurt as bad. Um, and that's where I'm actually looking to buy and, you know, value add prop opportunities in, in a smaller size, multi-tenant, low-rise garden style office buildings. But yeah, that's uh, definitely two different asset classes and supply demand is totally different on, on each, so. All right, and then here is the second part. Um, and he gave a lot of context, which is good. He said, I've been actively trying to purchase sub suburban offices in wealthy suburbs. And the consistent theme I've heard from local leasing brokers is there has been a significant increase in demand for small, sweet suburban office space and executive office space due to the urban flight of people leaving major city centers and wanting workspace closer to home. Mm -hmm. The urban flight seems more pronounced in areas with large floor plate offices occupied by credit tenants with strict COVID rules like yep. my local city center markets in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Sacramento. Some large companies are mothballing space in San Francisco with no plans to sublease or reoccupy the area. Mm -hmm. It's just sitting empty. In contrast, it seems like most all wealthy 100 to 200K median income suburban office markets I've explored nationally are becoming increasingly supply constrained with sub 10% vacancy, especially for small suite office space and lease rates rising. So the question is, do you see things differently or are you looking at any data showing this urban flight trend will reverse? The only market I've discovered that is really on the down move in both city centers and suburban is Houston, Texas of Sugarland, Woodlands, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a long question, Magnus. Uh, you know, if I see this trend reversing, probably not. Uh, the I think the, the whole workspace environment has shifted. And, uh, you know, for the smaller size companies uh, and larger size companies. But, uh, you know, for companies to come back to vertical buildings, eventually, yes. I think that trend will reverse but I'm not sure the suburban office market is gonna reverse. I think those will be some permanent shift there. Uh, but the distressed real estate, when it comes to vertical building office, it hasn't even started yet. I think next you know, two to five years, you're gonna see a lot of foreclosures. Um, I'm already seeing them. I mean, I'm buying a building uh, right now, 12 story building I owned twice before, 333 North Sam Houston Parkway in Houston for a third time and uh, it's 30% vacant. I sold it four years ago or five years ago. It was 85% occupied. Uh, so that trend is just beginning and it will continue for the next you know, two to five years. All right, our next question is from Eden Lee. It's good to see you. Um, he said, I live in Irvine. That's awesome, that's where we're at. And want to invest in an office multi-tenant within Orange County. I have two million cash to work with. 
at the current stage of the cycle, should I park it in a stabilized property for cash flow to weather the storm or look for a value add property to stabilize and hold? Um, you're in a great position. Um, I would say it depends if you're looking for cash flow out of a state or an Irvine, Central Orange County, um, I would definitely park 50% of my money in a you know income producing property that's value add. You can still add a little bit value and you have a little bit of a cushion if the market does turn. And the other 50% I would wait for you know a, a steeper uh, price reduction on some of these other assets. All right, Nick Gold, our new member. Uh, thanks for going ahead and asking questions right away. We're excited to have you. Um, he said, how do you find out about the replacement cost of a property? <laughs> that seems to be a very common question. Uh, you know, short answer, <laughs> appraisal. Uh, if you do have an appraisal on a property uh, from the former owner or a broker, Typically, you know, the, the owner has probably refinanced the property multiple times and they do have the old appraisal. That would give you your replacement cost. But general rule, if it's industrial, it's 125 to 150 bucks a foot. If it's retail, 200 to 250 a foot. Um, if it's a low rise office, it's 200 to 250 a foot. And if it's a high rise, it's anywhere from, you know, 300 to 600 bucks a foot. Depends how how high of a building it is. Uh, there is really no uh, metrics you can use to give you a precise replacement cost because first of all, cost of material is constantly on the move. Uh, you guys saw the lumber prices, uh, you know, went 200% and then it dropped on, you know, 50%. And then also the function of what type of construction the building is made of. Is it steel glass or is it wood and stucco? two completely different price points when it comes to material. So there's a lot that goes into it, but appraiser, appraisers use a ballpark, uh, same numbers I just gave you, so I would just use those. And you know, I like to buy, you know, 30 to 50% below replacement cost. So if I'm looking at the office building at, you know, 50 bucks a foot, um, I don't need to know what's a replacement cost. It's way above 50 bucks, right? It's more than 100 bucks a foot. So you don't need to really pinpoint on uh, that, just you know the price per uh, food you're bi uh, buying the building for. Uh, rule of thumb, you wanna be 50% below replacement cost. Yeah, and then also guys, we have those ranges of the replacement costs in your commercial masterclass members area. If you go to resources, there is a value add criteria section that includes those. And then Manny also shared a great tip that CoStar has the feature mm -hmm. that shows you the average price per foot of any asset in any submarket. That's, so that's right. Another great resource to look at. Um, next question from Nick: When do you when do you visit a property if you are out of state before or after LOI or after PSA, which is purchase sales agreement, or at due diligence? Yeah, definitely after you have a deal signed on an LOI. So letter of intent is non-binding generally. And um, the owner will definitely, seller or listing agent will definitely expect you to come and uh, tour the property as soon as you have an LOI signed. Sometimes they want you to even tour the property before LOI, but most definitely not after you've signed a PSA. All right. And then uh, last question is, if I have enough money for a down payment on a multi-million dollar commercial property, 
but no experience, do I need a sponsor to qualify for a loan? And if yes, how to compensate the sponsor? Very good question. Uh, it really all depends. If it's an asset that's a stabilized and you're retaining a local property management and leasing company, you don't need a sponsor generally. The lender will feel comfortable uh, who's going to be managing the property and is going to be leasing it. And they're going to probably very likely uh, require a lockbox. Lockbox means all the rents go to the lender's lockbox, pays the mortgage, whatever's left, they do a sweep over to your operating account. So in essence, you really have no role uh, in you know managing this asset. But if it's not stabilized, and let's say it's 50% occupied, it's a multi-tenant building and has a lot of uh, you know repairs, uh, deferred maintenance, and needs capex, and it's been a struggling for many years. That's the one that they would need an sponsor, someone that has experience turning buildings around, and that's one you're probably going to have a hard time getting a loan on if it's your first rodeo. All right. So our next question from David Hermio. Um, he said, do you always do a 1031 when you sell a property or only on some occasions? 90% of the time. Um, it's probably a handful of times I've uh, elected not to use the 1031. All right. And then he said, is it true that if you do a 1031 exchange, you're not allowed to use the property for personal use? And if so, are there any ways around that? Eh, generally, uh, 1031 exchange is meant to be for income producing property, but it doesn't mean you can't occupy a portion of the property. I have. Um, I've occupied properties before uh, and the 1031. But as long as the property is producing income and you're occupying portion of it, it's all right. You could do it. All right. Our next question from Z. Uh, when you do a cash out refinance on a property that's going to, that's going to be or is a 1031, mm -hmm. can you declare that portion as income without paying taxes still? Mm, no. I mean, taking equity out of your property is not income and is not taxable, if that's his question. A little confused there. Okay. And then he said, if not, then you have the tax-free cash but show no income for the mm -hmm. year which might not be good when looking to get credit. Is there any way around that? Mm, well, if you're doing a cash out refi, the property would definitely have to have income uh, unless you're getting hard money or personal loan. Um, lenders would definitely want to stress test the property income against the new debt mortgage payments. So uh, not sure what he means. I mean, it, it, the property would have to have income for you to be able to do the cash out refi. So you would have income. It's like the chicken and the egg. If you don't have, you know, the income, you're not going to be able to do the cash out refi. All right. So our next question is from Pao Singh. Um, good to see you as well. And he said, the government keeps printing money. Mm -hmm. Any ideas on how far inflation can go? Man, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, you know, I think we've seen the worst of it unless they keep printing more money. Um, they did have a pretty hard time passing this last 1.6 trillion stimulus. Um, but, you know, I'm, I think the consumer, the crazy consumer spending that we saw uh, past 12 to 18 months, I think that's 
starting to you know fade away and so I think we've seen the worst of it but I don't have a crystal ball sorry all right so now I have our next set of questions from Edward Joe um, your first question Edward we answered it at the beginning of this call from Timothy Tilly on 1031 exchange if you can uh, put it into multiple properties or if it has to be one property with mm -hmm. same or greater value so we'll skip to the next one um, have you had a situation where you did not use 1031 exchange when selling a property and yep. if so why yes uh, the most recent was uh, December 2019 when I saw Cashman's Landing uh, had 19 million dollar deferred gains uh, I did 1031 but I decided to break my 1031 in April of 2020 because of COVID and uh, all, all the uncertainty. Uh, most of the properties I had in escrow, they were going to be the replacement properties were in retail. Uh, one was a 10 story office. The rest were all retail with restaurants, very heavy in restaurants. So that kind of spooked me and it spooked my lenders too. One of my lenders actually, you know, uh, you know, resend their uh, term sheet uh, on a property. So I decided to go ahead and break my 1031. That's the most recent, but um, rarely I do that. But this time uh, it was definitely an unprecedented time. And uh, you guys uh, have lived through it. So you know the lockdown and all the businesses shut down uh, for multiple months um, obviously would spook anybody, especially when you're you know, buying 40, I had $44 million in escrow, multiple properties. All right. And then Edward's next question. When a tenant wants to make improvements, either interior or exterior, who pays for it? Tenant or landlord? Usually tenant pays for it unless is in your lease that the landlord has given the tenant TI allowance for future. Um, and that's, you know, not uncommon. Sometimes when a tenant signs a lease, they'll get, let's say 20 bucks a foot tenant improvement allowance. If it's a thousand square feet, that's 20 grand. And not often all tenants use that upfront before they move in and they go ahead, uh, have that allowance for the entire term of the lease. So they could use it in year three or year four. But short of that TI allowance in the lease, the tenant pays for it. All right, and then last question from Edward. How do we find out what the vacancy rate is for a given area? Well, CoStar, LoopNet, but uh, there is ways to get it for free. <laughs> um, any property you look on LoopNet, CoStar, uh, in that area, for that uh, asset class, if it's office, look for an office building, your zip code or your city you're looking to acquire, and pull up the OM on those properties that are listed. And the leasing and sales report, leasing comps, those all those metrics are typically uh, put in there by broker that gives you insight on what's the market uh, occupancy or vacancy for that asset class. So you get to get it for free. You get a lot of information from these OMs. So download three, four OMs in that zip code on that asset class and read through those uh, market reports. But uh, you can also buy it uh, from LoopNet or CoStar. They do sell the market research. All right. So our next question is from our new member, Josiah. Um, he said, thoughts on commercial properties and opportunity zones. Saw a commercial property available in Santa Ana, California. <laughs> it looked to have potential. However, it's located in an opportunity zone. Thoughts on that? 
Uh-uh. Well, I had one in escrow. It was an 11-story building on Broadway. I think it was 1600 North Broadway in Santa Ana. I was going to buy uh, in, you know, it was an opportunity zone uh, property. So I was going to buy it for my, you know, uh, 1031 exchange uh, that I broke. You know, I put those funds into an opportunity zone fund I created. Typically, these properties are overpriced. The price has been padded. Um, because the owners are well aware the, of the, you know, the, uh, how favorite opportunity zones are uh, to investors that want to avoid paying federal taxes on capital gains. And these are padded. The building I was buying was definitely padded. Similar buildings would sell for probably 20% less. So I decided to break my uh, escrow. Uh, I am buying, however, an Opportunity Zone building. The 333 North Sam Houston Parkway is in Opportunity Zone. So I'm buying that because I have till end of the year to complete it. So depends where you look in. Orange County is definitely overpriced and prices are padded. But in Houston and other areas, you may find, um, you know, properties at reasonable price that are in the zone. All right. Next question on the referrals list. Do you have any contacts for general contractors to help rehab properties? No, I don't. You know, general contractors are probably the toughest uh, ones to find good ones and reputable that are consistent and they're still in business. They're always, things are always changing and uh, I don't, I wish I did. <laughs> Do you have any tips on how to vet general contractors when working with new ones in the area? Yeah, usually just get a reference from, you know, five, six property owners. They've done improvements for and just get feedback from that all right next question do you recommend tapping into home equity to raise buying power uh, my current home is at 45 percent LTV um, absolutely if you're gonna put the money to work and if your rate is sub 3% which I assume it would be it would probably be in the two low twos um, sometimes even below 2% uh, most properties if you're buying out of a state you can probably get a, a great credit um, anchored center for seven, seven and a half cap and use the line of credit. You pick up quite a bit of a spread there, 5%. You may basically make 5% with the bank money on, on your own equity line. So definitely, uh, but a strategic investment only. All right. And then last question from Josiah. After listening to the master class, I want to make sure I understand the strategy. In a simplistic way, would you say one of the main goals to flip a commercial deal is find a quality located high vacancy property or an under market rent property, then come in, lower the operating cost, then lease out the property to 100%, therefore raising the cap rate, then repricing the property by the new cap rate, then selling for a profit. Please expand or add. I want to make sure my shoulders are pointed in the right direction when hunting. Man, they're perfectly positioned. <laughs> you hit it right on the nail. Yes, you want to buy value add, mismanaged property, improve those insufficiencies, and you buy by then you've added your value, and the price of the property is going to be naturally higher, and that's what you want to look for. You don't want to buy anything that you can't add value. You know, I tell people I look for things that can improve. Right? You don't want to just park your money, even at a fixed income type of asset. Um, 85%, 90% occupied retail center out of a state. I look for, 
you know, value add components to the property. If there is nothing I can do, absolutely nothing, I would still not buy that property, even at the eight cap. All right, next question from Wajtech. Uh, last week you said 200 to 600 square foot office spaces are too small and attract mm -hmm. short-term mom and pop leases. What would you say is the ideal size for an office space to lease out the easiest? That's a tough one. I mean, if it's a 20 story office building, you're naturally going to end up with 60, 70, 80 tenants. But typically what you guys are going to be trading is going to be one to three story office building or a retail center. Um, I like to use percentage, you know, five to 10%, uh, you know, any tenant five to 10% range is, is what I like to see. So basically if it's 5%, you would end up with 20 tenants, right? A hundred percent occupancy. Um, I don't like any tenant over 20% of the property. So to answer your question, it would be five tenants, it would be 20 tenants. So five to 20, uh, tenants, it's ideal. And then uh, when, if ever, is an exception to the rule on the 20% tenant occupying space? Ah, if I got tractor supply, uh, Food Lion, um, Walmart, Target, uh, any of those uh, major tenants, I would love to have them more than 20%. All right, next question from Artie. said, a lot of listings that I come across mention pro forma. Do you give offers on a property based on actuals? actual numbers mm -hmm. or pro forma actual yeah um, I want to go in immediately upon closing of escrow to know what is my return not what is speculated uh, by the listing agent or the seller that the property is going to fetch two three years from now so always go with the actual all right then we have a question from Nicole Nicole Laughlin good to see you as well um, she said, a while back, you indicated that you were keeping some cash liquid for investment in a money market account while, while you await the right opportunity. With inflation, I'm wondering if this is still your approach. I've been doing that myself, but as each COVID year passes, I'm wondering if I should be pulling the trigger on something. I'm an attorney in South Florida and mm -hmm. would love a small retail office or medical space. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I would definitely say put half of your money to work if you can find a small value add deal, add the value, add the lipstick, uh, lease up a couple of the vacancies, and then put it back on the market immediately and flip it. Because this is one that um, I think the cycle of economy obviously uh, you know, was propped up by the Fed, a stimulus in combination with the much lower rates uh, they dropped. And I think that's temporary. I think, you know, uh, you will see uh, the tide turn. There is a lot of liquidity in the market, but once that liquidity starts to fade and be burned off, uh, you're going to see the demand from the buyers and investors go down. So definitely ride the wave if you can. Um, and also you say you're an attorney. If you have, if you have multiple associates and you have a need for two, 3,000 square feet, Maybe you could buy in a small uh, single or two-story office, use an SBA loan, so you don't have to use a lot of your liquidity and, you know, and, uh, you know, buy one as a user. You can occupy 50% or more of the building, use the SBA loan. That's just a thought. I don't know if you have a small uh, operation or multiple associate, but food for thought. All right, and so now we're gonna hop over to our questions in the comments. So guys, we have a little bit more time. If you have any questions that haven't been answered, go ahead, post them there. 
Uh, we'll start with our first one from our new member, Ron Borovinsky. Welcome to the group. Welcome. He said, I'm a 13-year experienced real estate developer in New York City, focusing on entrance through heavily distressed situations. Manny, I am looking to begin my commercial efforts with low-rise retail in the tri-state area. However, I'm unsure of underlying research required to determine which sub-market I should be searching in for opportunities. Looking forward to hearing your thinking. Well, um, I don't know nothing about your sub-market or New York uh, City or surrounding areas. Um, I would definitely consult a retail broker I think you said you want Mexis or retail. See who's the top performer in retail on a national level for that sub-market and take them out to lunch, pick up the phone, call them and set up a meeting uh, or a Zoom call and let them give you some guidance because that's a sub-market I have no knowledge on. I wish I could help you there. All right. Do your demographic criteria apply to that market at all? Uh, my demographic? That, absolutely. The density is... Um, always a key no matter where you're buying so you want to have at least 70,000 population within three mile and then obviously uh, disposable income if you're doing retail that's very important you want to definitely be above national average household income of 60,000 those two are the one you want to definitely make sure it checks off awesome and then guys we also have those demographic criterias under the value add criteria in the resources section of your mm -hmm. members area. Um, let's hop over to uh, George hopped in. Hope all is well, Manny. Good to see you, George. And then we have Ali. Could you tell us a bit more about the new purchase of 333 building in Houston and the price per foot analysis, et cetera? Sure, yeah. So I first bought this building in 2005 for 12.7 or 12.4, something in that range and uh, it was 65 percent occupied sold it in 2007 when it was 85 percent occupied for 18 million um, and then i bought it back again from the bank in 2011 when it was 60 percent occupied for 6.5 million and then i sold it in 2015 for 18.5 million so it was a, a absolute home run the second round and then now I'm buying it again from the bank. It got foreclosed, it's now 30% occupied, a lot more distressed than 2005 and 2011. And it's at 33 bucks a foot, I think. It's 220,000 square feet. So I'm buying for seven and a half million. And I'm hoping to do it again for a third time and sell it for 18 million plus uh, three to five years from now. So the market is obviously um, a lot more challenging when it comes to office this time around because it's not caused by a recession, it's caused by you know, change in uh, work environment with companies. So that's one that um, you know, it, it may take a little bit longer than the last two times I bought and sold the property, but I'm excited. Yeah. All right, well, um, I think we reached our 30 minutes. This was great, guys. I love the questions you guys are asking uh, and thank you all for joining the call. Again, uh, warm welcome to the new members. Uh, make sure you network with each other and help each other out. And see you guys next week. And I'll keep you guys posted on how things unfold with 333. Thank you.